Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. Zechar is the Hebrew word for to remember. Zachar, to remember. That's why we call the observance of the Lord's Supper Le Zicharon, for remembrance. Zechariah's name, Zachar, remembrance. Zechariah means God remembers. And so the book of Zechariah focuses on the very theme that his name draws our attention to that God is a God of remembrance. He's not a God of forgetfulness. So he remembers his covenant with Israel and he is always faithful to it. When we think of God's remembrance, we're not thinking merely about him recalling what he knows. It means that he acts on what he has promised. And so I wanted us to look at Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah, by the way, like Jeremiah, And like Ezekiel, was of a priestly family. He may very well have served as a priest. In fact, his grandfather had served during the time of Joshua, the high priest, about whom Zechariah will mention, it's his grandfather, who served in the temple at the time of Zerubbabel and and the return of the Jewish people from the Babylonian captivity. In the book of Zechariah can be divided into two parts. Really, chapters 1 through 8 focuses attention on what Israel has been suffering and God's promise of deliverance. Chapters 9 through 14 deal with what is to take place in yet future time, future to us, in fact, when the Lord would establish his kingdom. Chapters 9, 10, 11 are a unit that form the first of the two last prophecies that Zechariah provides. And chapters 12, 13, and 14 provide a second uh, vision or a second prophecy which builds on the previous one. So you have two sections, 9, 10, 11 and you have 12, 13, and 14. 9, 10, 11 focuses attention on God's deliverance, redemptive grace. That's why in chapter 9, we have the prophecy of the Messiah that would come humbly riding upon a donkey. And that came to fruition when Messiah entered Jerusalem to give his life a ransom for many. In Zechariah chapter 12, we will see, it sort of climaxes with Israel looking upon him whom they have pierced and mourning for one as one mourns for his only son. The time when Israel as a nation will confess their failure to recognize Yeshua when he first came, which is a theme of the prophets throughout. And Isaiah 53, it might be the clearest demonstration of that confessional prayer. You remember in Isaiah 53, Israel as a nation will one day say, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on us the iniquity of us all. That's Israel's confession of her sin of rejecting Messiah when he first came. And we thought he was smitten, stricken, and afflicted by God because of his own sin. 
But now we know it was our sin that he bore. It was our iniquities that that he carried. So Isaiah 53 is not merely a prophecy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, although it includes those elements. It's a prophecy of a moment in time when Israel as a nation will confess those truths about Messiah and as a consequence receive the life that can come and the forgiveness of sin that comes by such an acknowledgement. Everybody with me? So when in Zechariah we read, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. What that is, he's talking about that moment when Israel as a nation will now see the redemptive grace of Messiah and recognize that his piercing has been in their behalf and that their role in rejecting Yeshua was the mechanism by which his piercing took place. So you have this very interesting intertwined sort of uh, uh, ideas regarding the return of, of Messiah. And so it really looks forward beyond our time, yet sometime in the future. And over the next, by the way, the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at prophecy because that's where I think our head should go. As I said, I'm really praying that there's going to be a revival among our people again during this time because of what's transpiring. And as I remember the revival that unfolded, that hit, that was unleashed, that led to my own experience of salvation, it was the prophetic word that was the instigator of that. So I'm thinking this is the time to focus on prophecy once again. I might be wrong, but that's what I think uh, we ought to do. It's certainly what I think I ought to do. So next week, we're going to start uh, an investigation of Matthew 24 and 25. After all, that's the Olivet Discourse. That's Yeshua's teaching on prophecy. And that would be a good place for us to start. There's much to be looked at, but I wanted us to look here Uh, because of the immediate circumstances that we see unfolding before our eyes. Now, I'm not suggesting Zechariah chapter 12 is the fulfillment of what we're seeing. But what I am saying is what will one day be fulfilled, we're already seeing a foreshadowing of some sort in our own day and age, which oftentimes happens. So I want to just draw our attention to this very, uh, just briefly, it's already after 12, but I want to do this just briefly so that we get, Uh, a sense of the biblical dynamic with respect to what we're seeing unfold and that we would be drawn to ever pray and uh, for our Jewish people. So look at chapter 12, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord. This word oracle means burden. By burden, it doesn't mean it's hard for Zechariah to proclaim. It means it's threatening. It's a burdensome message because it's a message that has within it a threat. And the threat is against those that would raise their hands against God's chosen people. So it's a burden for those that are on the wrong side of what God is doing. Now, to illustrate that this is connected to Zechariah 9, 10, 11, look at chapter 9. Keep your finger in 12, but look at chapter 9. See how it opens? The oracle of the word of the Lord. So we've got the same thing. Now we've got another oracle in chapter 9. Another burden, another weighty matter that will be weighty for those who are the recipients of the judgment of God that will fall. Then notice what he says. The word of the Lord concerning Israel. See, it's a burdensome message and it it involves Israel. 
Now look what he goes on to say. Thus declares the Lord. That's Neum Adonai. Comes up all throughout the prophets. It's one of those major terms that says declares the Lord. It's a word that emphasizes the certainty about what is going to take place as God makes this declaration. And so look at again, uh, and he says, declares the Lord. And look how he describes him. The one who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. He draws our attention to creation. Draws our attention that he is the creator of heaven and earth. And what's more, he's the creator of man, humanity. Those are the two principal creations of God. His creation of all things and his creation of all people who inhabit the all things that God has created. But the focus is not just to the past, Genesis 1 and 2. If he's the creator of all things and the creator of humanity, then he's also sovereign over both. That is to say, he contains both, he orders both, he controls both. So what will happen to Israel is under God's ordering and what will happen to the nations that perpetrate the evils against Israel is also under God's jurisdiction. He's bringing these things about. And if you look at chapter 9, he says the same thing. For the Lord has an eye on humanity, the Gentiles, and on all the tribes of Israel. Again, Zechariah, different phraseology, introduces his two visions with the same intro or same warning. The thing that we ought to be cognizant of. This is a message, a declaration of what is to transpire by the creator of the universe, the creator of humanity, who has sovereign rulership over both. And therefore, it is he that is bringing these events uh, to unfold. What does he say? Look at verse 2. Behold, it's the word hine, important word in the prophets. It's always used by Isaiah to introduce a supernatural activity. Zechariah is telling us, behold, take note of this, pay attention to this, watch for it. And so what does he say? And hope in it. He says, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. The word cup, by the way, don't think, is not the word kos, like a cup you would drink something out of. No, it's the word saf, which is a word means a giant basin. So he's going to make Jerusalem not merely a cup of what I call a cup of staggering, but a basin, a large basin of staggering. What he means is a large basin of intoxication. See, what you have to think of, this is a giant basin, a giant container, a giant bowl filled with wine that the nations of the world are going to indulge themselves in, that they're going to be drawn to, and it's going to serve to stagger them, to intoxicate them, to make them reel to and fro, to confuse them, and to cause them to make the wrong decisions. That's the idea. They're going to be in a stupor, in other words. So he says, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem this giant basin of intoxication. Just like wine or alcohol or drugs, there's an intoxicating and alluring, a desiring uh, uh, impact that it can have. If it didn't, people wouldn't do it, right? If there wasn't something alluring about it, if there wasn't something that they found enjoyment through, they wouldn't be drawn to it. 
That's what temptation is. It's meant to lure us. It lures us in something that we might find some relief in, some joy in, some fulfillment in. But the end result will be that it will be destructive. So he's saying this basin of intoxicating liquid it's going to draw people to it like drugs draw people to it or like alcohol can draw the alcoholic to it. Jerusalem is going to be drawing people to it. Isn't it amazing? We're, we're seeing this unfold on our television with, with such clarity. There have been other massacres. You don't see people on the streets protesting against the victims of those massacres. When have we seen a massacre uh, performed by some group of people and the people that have experienced the massacre, that suffered on the massacre, are the ones who were blamed for the massacre? I can't, I can't think of one. I can't think of uh, individuals that see the massacres, saw it on the interviews. I think you saw them as well as I. College students, you got to be kidding me. College students saying, it's a lie. The vision, the things aren't true. I haven't seen any proof of these things. It's staggering to the mind. But such is the work of the evil one. And such is the work of sin. And such is the work of hatred of God that is manifested in the hatred of his people. You cannot love God and hate his people. God loves his people. He says in Deuteronomy 7, I've set my love upon you. Not because you've been the greatest of all people, you've been the fewest of all, but simply because I have loved you. The prophets say, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. They are beloved of God in Romans 11. You cannot be a lover of God and be a hater of the people that God loves and set his choice upon and set his heart upon and set his love upon. And so he's saying, Jerusalem is going to become, and by Jerusalem, he doesn't mean the city. He means the people represented by it. He means the Jews. And people are going to be drawn to them, and it's going to serve to bring judgment upon them, is what he's saying. So look what else. He says, to all the surrounding peoples. You know, we're seeing the immediate neighbors of Israel striking at them. Gaza, Israel hasn't been there for 18 years. They had secured it after the Yom Kippur War, but they never inhabited it until like 2002, 2001, 2005, 18 years. And then they they left. Haven't been there for, well, as I said, 18 years. It's been Judenrein, rid of Jews. And during that time, Hamas has grown in influence and power in Iran, and it's become a base of terrorist operations. That's what all the rocket launchings are all about. That's what the tunnel diggings to infiltrate into the land of Israel. Why? Because Hamas has said from the river to the sea is what uh, Palestine will be free, right? Isn't that their line? They're not interested in a two-state solution. They're in, interested in a one-state solution, an Arab state that has no Jews in it. 
and they're interested in the destruction of all Jews. That's why the leader of Hamas called for a worldwide, not protest, right? Let's be clear. He called for a worldwide jihad. So what's a jihad? Murder as many Jews as you can. So this isn't merely about Israel. And don't ever think it is. It has a spiritual dimension with respect to the evil one's work in the hearts and minds of individuals who oppose God and his work and his people. And so there's a spiritual element as well as there's a physical, tangible, visible element. And so he says, Jerusalem is going to become this. We're seeing it in our day. We've been seeing it for some time, since 48, 67, certainly, when Jerusalem itself came under complete Jewish control. But look, he says, on that day, I will make Jerusalem like a heavy stone. So he uses two images, the imagery of drinking and the imagery of building. So he says, Jerusalem will be drawing to people like a drink draws people, and it will only serve to make them drunken. Drunken with respect to their anger toward Israel and drunken with respect to their ability to think clearly about what it is they're doing. And on the other hand, like builders that work with these heavy stones, they'll seek to pick them up and the stones will crush them themselves, is what he's saying. And we see it time and time again. So look what he says. All who lift it will surely wound themselves by it. And all the nations of the earth will gather together against it. That will be yet future. We're seeing some nations, either through, certainly through the terrorists and their uh, supporting nations, for sure, Iran and others, Syria now. And so he says, uh, and all who lift will surely hurt themselves. On that day, declares the Lord. Look what he says. I will strike every horse with panic. And then he says, and, I, and every horse, verse 6, every horse of the peoples with blindness. God did this once before, by the way. If you remember, back in the book of Kings, remember when Elisha, with his servant, was being pursued by the Syrians, I think it was, the Arameans, and their armies come against Elisha. And his servant says to Elisha, do you, I think it's Elisha, not Elijah. You have to double check that. Suzanne, you're helpful in this regard. Um, but the prophet tells the servant, he that is with us is greater than, he that, than uh, the armies that are coming against us. And he prays. I thought it was interesting. He prays, open their eyes. Open my servant's eyes so he can see. And he opens their eyes. And there's all these angelic forces surrounding them and the fiery chariots and so on. And after that, he says, okay, let's just go to sleep. You know, it's like, okay. But then when the enemy attacks, what does God do? He blinds the eyes of the enemy so that they could not pursue uh, the prophet or uh, Israel. Here, Zechariah is saying a similar thing. He says, God is going to strike the horses. And what does he say? He's going to strike uh, every horse with blindness and madness. What is he talking about? He's talking about their weapons, right? The horse in the ancient world was a formidable weapon. And so the cavalry, cavalry that rode upon it had an advantage over the foot soldier, especially in the ancient world. So he's saying he's going to strike the weaponry, and those that are using them with a madness so that they are malfunctioning. And then he's going to strike them 
with blindness so that these weapons don't work correctly. Keep your eye out for that with what we're seeing unfold before us. It's what he'll do in the future. Might it be something he'll do currently? Keep your eyes open for it. I'm not saying he will. I'm just saying, look how he has worked in the time of Elijah or Elisha in the book of Kings. I think it's 1 Kings 6, so I want to say Elijah. Am I wrong? (laughs) You didn't look it up. Suzanne, I meant that. It's all good. But that's the way he worked with his prophet in the past. Might it be the way he's going to deal with the enemies of Israel in the future? Might it be what he'll do at present? Just look for it. And then he says, and then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Look for God to miraculously empower the armies of Israel to do their duty, to do it with mercy and to do it with all proficiency, excellence, professionalism, and, and to do it, you know, precisely as they are ordered and instructed to do. He's going to empower them to be enabled to be victorious. He's done it in 48. He did it in 56. He did it in 67. He did it in 73. He did it in the 80s in the incursion in the north. He's sustained them throughout all the terrorist raids up till now, and he will do it again. And our prayers ought to be that God does do it through his people for the good of his people and for good of all peoples all over the world. So let's pray to that end. And let's hope in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's stand together and we'll give him our praise and we'll give him our prayers. Next week, we'll look at Matthew 24, 25. And we'll look at what is said of end time events. Father in heaven, we lift up to you the people of Israel, even as we have been praying. Father, our desire is to see you at work. You proclaimed your people safe and injustice, terror, and barbarism brought to an end. Lord, we know that all peace will not come until the Prince of Peace reigns on his throne in the city of peace. But Lord, until that time comes, would you make yourself known that all the ends of the earth would see your great power and majesty. When he lifts up his voice, the entire earth can disappear. When he lifts up his voice, his entire earth can come into reality. When he lifts up his voice, people can be saved. When he lifts up his voice, those that are marginalized, those that are abused and attacked can be saved, can be delivered, and can be rescued. We pray, Lord, you will do this through the instrumentality of the Israeli army, through the instrumentality of her allies, the United States and others. We pray, Lord, for your mercy and grace on your people. We pray for your judgment 
and your hand of unrelenting destruction upon your enemies and upon Israel's enemies. We pray for mercy and grace on civilians in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Lebanon, in Israel, and in the surrounding nations that might be impacted, affected, like Jordan, like Saudi, like Iraq, Syria, and other countries that are in harm's way. Father, for these people whose hearts you know full well, might there be mercy, might there be grace, might there be salvation, we pray. But may you be glorified, may you be lifted up, and might you be recognized as King of all kings, Lord of all lords, Master of the universe, and that Messiah might be recognized for who he is as the Savior of the world. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. We want to sing uh, Israel's name.